All right, so before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is March 30th, 2022, and my name is Ben Bauman, and I'm here in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I'm speaking via phone with Dave Cheatham, who is in North Vernon, Indiana, and we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So just starting off, when and where were you born? I was born in Madison, Indiana in 1951. Okay, and what were your parents' names? My dad's name was Gene, G-E-N-E, and my mother's name was Vera, V-E-R-A. Okay. And when did your family move to Indiana? Uh, our family has been in Indiana for a long time. Uh, we actually traced history back to uh, Sarah Mosley, who was a great-great-great-great-grandmother who lived in Madison back in the 1800s. Wow. So uh, it's been we've been around Madison for a long time. Yeah, okay. And uh, what were your parents' occupations? My dad worked uh, for the Jefferson Proving Ground, which is a military testing facility for ammunition. And my mother worked in a factory in Madison uh, making musical instruments called con organ. Hmm, okay. Did you have any siblings growing up? I have two sisters. I have an older sister. Her name is Chris. She lives in California. I have a younger sister named Debbie who lives in Lexington, Indiana. Okay. And uh, how would you describe your childhood? I had a good childhood. Uh, both parents were uh, hard workers and taught us good morals. And uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, which was, was typical back then. But she just took really good care of us and did a lot of things with us. And just had a really good upbringing. And were your parents the most influential people, you would say, then, in your childhood? They were, uh, most definitely. I had a grandmother that uh, my grandmother Cheatham, who was very influential too. She kind of got me um, interested in reading the Bible and, and uh, to learn about Jesus, and I was really thankful later on that uh, she took the time to do that. Yeah, okay, cool. And uh, what were your family's political views growing up? Well, uh, they weren't really very strongly political. My mom and dad weren't. I uh, had an uncle that lived in Madison that was elected as county clerk back in the 1960s. Oh, okay. So uh, while he was in that office, he stored the voting machines for the county in my grandmother's garage, so he had to keep them someplace, so that's where they stored them. Yeah. <laughs> so did you ever, like, have conversations with your uncle about politics and stuff? Or? I did. In, in fact, when I first ran in 1984, he was my campaign manager. Oh, wow. Okay. So... Uh, did he then kind of like uh, groom you then as a as a political figure? Did he kind of mentor you and help you yeah, develop? I, I didn't know much about politics, and I was pretty naive, and 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 still didn't handle about a lot of things. But uh, he had uh, you know a lot of connections and knew a lot of people in Madison, and yeah, uh, he was able to be very helpful. Uh, one of his really good friends was a guy named Spence Schneider, who yep. was a former state representative. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, he was also involved in my campaign and uh, gave me a lot of good advice, and I, I appreciate both of them. Cool, okay. Uh, what schools did you attend growing up? I attended uh, Madison schools, um, went to E.O. Muncie Grade School, Madison Junior High, Madison High School. And how would you describe your educational experiences there? I had a really good education of top-notch teachers, uh, very well uh, educated themselves and very good teachers and just really enjoyable experience being 
Madison and the system there is if this a really good time. Did you have any favorite subjects? Well, I did like social studies uh, quite okay. a bit. I ended up teaching social studies when I got out of college. Oh wow! Okay, really liked it. That was my favorite subject. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, were you involved in any like clubs or sports teams in school? Yes, I, I was uh, in high. Uh, I was a Christian group in school. I was uh, in the Letterman's Club. I, I played sports uh, in Madison and, and had several letters, and uh, so I was in that organization. And they actually had a ping pong club. I was in the ping pong club. And, and wow! We doing, I like playing ping pong. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. All right. And so, how did you view the state of Indiana growing up? Well, I I, uh, I enjoy being in the Midwest. Uh, it's you know more rural small town area and I, I enjoyed that I like still like living in a real small town area um, my first adventure at the state house was when I was in high school I was in my government class and the teacher brought us to uh, the state house to sit in the gallery and watch the proceedings and yeah. I still have a picture of that and uh, my, my teacher wrote a comment later on uh, when I said thank you know she said well I'm glad you were able to to sit there and watch what was going on and not fall asleep like you do in class. And she was just kidding, she was just kidding, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when you were there, did you ever imagine yourself like going to the state house as a legislator one day? No, I didn't. I, I didn't have any idea that I ever do something like that. Yeah. Um, so what what did you do after high school then? Well, after high school, I went to college and I went to uh, Indiana State. I got a degree in social studies, and I went to Purdue after that and got a master's degree in political science. Okay. And after that, I got my first job teaching high school here in Jennings County. Interesting. All right. And uh, were you involved in any clubs in college? or? Uh, not really. I, I um, just more or less focused on the academic part of it and yeah. uh, didn't really get involved in anything besides that. Was it a good experience for you in college? Well, it, it was in, in certain ways. Uh, I did transfer uh, from my first start. I actually went to IU my first year. And it was just, IU was a, uh, such a big school. I wasn't used to that being from a small town. So yeah. I transferred to Indiana State uh, the next three years. and So I, it's a bit better situated for me. Sure. Yeah, okay. And uh, how did your awareness of politics change when you were in college? Well, it was interesting. When I was in college, I think it was the first time that, uh, that the Constitutional Amendment that lowered the voting age to 18. Uh, so I remember voting the first time uh, around that time. It, it, uh, it was an interesting experience to be able to vote for the first time. You know, I, I was uh, interested in, in just being able to do that to see what the process was like. Yeah. Sure. Um, so let's see. Think about your your family life. When, if at all, did you get married? I got married in 1973 to uh, a girl that lived in Madison, also, and we we've been happily married ever since. We have uh, three. Uh, I'm sorry. We have two children. We have seven grandchildren. Oh wow! So we have a have a nice family, and we just really we really enjoy being around family. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And did your family have much influence in like your decision to run for the general assembly? 
Well, they did. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, my uncle was very influential and encouraged me to do that. And my wife was very helpful, very supportive. She she worked hard to help me campaign and just taking care of the kids. And and when you were General Assembly, you actually moved to Indianapolis and stayed there during the week. And so she had a lot of responsibility taking care of the kids while I was gone. Yeah. Yeah. How did you guys uh, manage that sort of family and work balance then going back and forth? Well, we were a lot younger then, so we were able to, to uh, handle things a lot better than what we do when we get older. But, you know, that's, that's typical for everyone. But yeah, uh, she was, she was a very hard worker, and we have other family close by. My, my parents and her parents live close by. They, they helped us out a lot, too. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. Um, so what shaped your uh, political outlook then when you first got involved in politics and... Um, you know, you decide, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to run for the General Assembly. Were there any like particular uh, political topics that you're most interested or in or? Yeah, I, being a public school teacher, I was very interested in education and uh, education is one of the biggest items that the General Assembly deals with, um, one of the biggest items in their budget, of course. Yeah. As a public school teacher, I was very interested in and uh, educational funding and educational uh, laws, and and uh, that was really one of the main reasons that uh, inspired me to try to run. Did you have a campaign strategy? Well, uh, first time I ran, I really, really didn't have a, a developed strategy. I just listened to other people that gave me some advice that had run before. Oh, okay. And uh, I was I kind of patterned myself. Uh, our congressman at that time was Lee Hamilton who had been a well-known congressman and just very, very popular. And so I got to know him and, and tried to uh, look at some of the things he did and how he approached the job and kind of used him as an example of what I wanted to do in my campaign as well. Sure. Did you uh, do any of, like, the door-to-door campaigning, or was it mostly, like, just reaching out to people in other ways? Or Well, we, we did... Uh, first time I actually ran two different times I ran in 1984 the first time and then I uh, left office in 1992 and I came back in 2006 and ran again for and stayed for six years so yeah uh, the first campaign in both of those periods I did a lot of door-to-door and in 2006 we went to like 6,000 houses uh, in this one summer of campaigning wow geez okay and uh, how how was that experience for you? Did you meet interesting people that way, or? I did. There's a lot of interesting <laughs> people when you go to their houses, you know. And yeah. A lot of people I knew. I grew up in Madison, and, and of course okay. I taught school here in North Vernon, so I knew a lot of people. Yeah. Just that way. Um, uh, we did a lot of it in the summertime, and my wife was with me, and a couple of days it was pretty hot, and a lot of people had sympathy on us. We'd be we'd be kind of sweating <laughs> as we walked door to door, and it's kind of hot. And they say, "Oh, come in, get a drink of water." You know, okay, we will. You know, so. It was an interesting time. Did you ever have any, like, because I imagine, you know, whenever someone's campaigning, you're going to someone's house, especially if it's someone you don't know, you kind of don't exactly what, you don't really know what you're, I guess, going to be walking into. Did you ever have any kind of weird situations or awkward ones talking to someone? Well, I had had two different occasions uh, where I was bitten by a dog. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess that would be very awkward to... The first one was a little dog, and it bit me on my ankle. Oh, my gosh. And the second time was a big dog, and I won't tell you where it bit me. Okay. 
not good. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Yeah. That makes it a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was. You know. And I. I like dogs, but I guess you know some dogs are very protective when you go to the house and there's no one there. They they become very defensive and very aggressive. And yeah. I found that out. So I was always careful after that about dogs. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, do you remember who your main opponent was the first time you ran for office? Yes, uh, the first time I ran was another teacher at the high school where I taught. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Wow. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, you know, it was a little bit tense. I mean, we're we're still good friends, and we were good friends back then. But things, uh, other people that were campaigning, kind of did things that uh, made it a little bit tense, which you know can get that way sometimes in the campaign. But yeah, uh, I I never wanted to be anyone to attack the other person running against. I just want to talk about myself and hope people will, will you know consider that when they vote. And and uh, she was about the same way. I mean, she didn't really uh, have an aggressive campaign, but uh, other people that were involved in both sides kind of got aggressive, and that happens sometimes. Yeah, okay, I guess, yeah, it uh, goes with the territory to a certain extent, I suppose. Um, so what did you think of the election process as a whole? Well, it's it's interesting uh, with the the legislature. You have more than one county, so I had three different counties, and just you know, it's more of a regional type of campaign. And I was fortunate enough to have people in other counties that were very helpful and and uh, showing me around and getting to be people. So that was the difference between uh, running for you know state legislature and just a local office. Yeah. Okay. And uh, what was your reaction when you found out that you won the election? Well, we were, we were pretty happy. Uh, we, we celebrated, and especially the very first time that we didn't know we were getting into, but it, it turned out okay, everything was well. But uh, we had worked hard, and, and uh, it was something that we, we prayed about a lot. We figured that God had led us to do that, and we were, we were uh, willing to go ahead and see what kind of adventures we were going to have. Right. Okay. And did you change campaign strategies for future elections, or you just kind of go with the same the same type of uh, strategy? Or well, I'd say more like we refined the things we were doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, to kind of look back at the, some of the the different uh, campaign ads we had and the yard signs and things, we we kind of developed a strategy of having like a similar. Uh, orientation for signs we have bumper stickers and signs that have the same design so it's like almost like having your own trademark so when people see the sign they recognize it just simply by the way it's designed and everything yeah sure and my wife is really good at writing campaign ads she's very good at using language and she's very much in tune with what people think and so uh, she was very good very helpful in writing campaign ads oh okay so what were you thinking uh, the first day you walked into the state house as an elected official? I was in awe. It was just an awesome scene. And it's like I looked at myself, I thought, uh, how did I get here? You know, yeah. I didn't really think I deserved to be there. It's just I guess the setting was, you know, pretty overwhelming. And just have all the other people there and just... Just seeing all the things going on, it just—I I felt really blessed to be there. I mean, I, I was thankful that I could do that. It was such a great opportunity in my life to be able to, to serve. Yeah. And uh, I, I learned a, a lot of things about laws, about uh, 
things in politics, and I learned a lot about human nature. Sure. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I guess you, you kind of have to become almost an expert on analyzing people when you're in that position. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot of personal relationships, you know, and, and uh, you, we hope when you talk to people that when you give your word or you say you're going to do something or not do something that you keep your word. Mm-hmm. And in politics, that's that's not always easy to find. Okay, uh, yeah. Unfortunately. But, you know, I always tried to keep my word. I was very careful not to say I would do something or not do something unless I was absolutely sure I could do it. So what would and, be, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I got, there's there's a couple times where uh, I had given my word to do something that was a very, uh, very interesting situation. A couple of uh, bills that came up uh, back in the 1980s, uh, the governor at the time, uh, Bob Orr, had a program called Build Indiana, where they wanted to increase gasoline taxes okay. to be able to have more funds to build more roads and more upkeep on the roads. And it was a it was a partisan issue in a way because an election was coming up. It was the first time that Evan Byer was running for governor. And at the time, I was a Democrat, so the the numbers in the House were 52 Republicans and 48 Democrats. And to pass the bill, of course, you have to have 51. Well, there were two Republican. Uh, representatives who had never voted for a tax increase, and they had publicly stated that they weren't going to vote for this bill because they would not vote for a tax increase. So to pass the bill, uh, there had to be one, at least one Democrat voter uh, represented to vote for the bill. And uh, as it was, I had Governor Orr actually called me at home, and, and uh, he uh, told me that uh, there were two projects in my district that were be on the list if this bill passed, that they would spend several million dollars <clears throat> updating State Highway 7 and State Highway 62 in Madison and in North Vernon. And he assured me that if this bill passed, that it, those, those projects would be done. And, right. you know, I was in a party, but I also represented an area, so I said, you know what, I'll do that. I'll, I'll vote for the bill. And so <clears throat> that would have been the 51st vote. Well, the day the bill came up, um, we had a caucus, both parties had a caucus, and uh, the leader of the Democratic caucus said, now if all 48 of us stick together, uh, this bill won't pass because we know for sure there's two uh, Republicans that won't vote for it. So is everyone going to vote no? And I raised my hand and I said, I'm going to vote yes. Mm. And so 47 people that were there started uh, trying to convince me to not vote for the bill. And number one, I'd already given my word, and I, I thought I need to keep my word. Number two, I was more concerned about the people I represented in my district than about what happened with the political party. Yeah. So after two and a half hours of being in the room with everyone doing everything they could, from yelling and screaming to threatening to uh, just everything you can imagine, trying to convince me to change my mind, yeah. they finally left the room when we went out to vote. and. Uh, the machine was open for like 15 minutes. Everyone had voted except for three or four people, and I was one of the ones that hadn't voted. And after that time, I finally went ahead and voted yes. And as soon as I voted yes, I was the 51st vote, and the machine locked up the vote, and it passed. So all 47 of the other people in the caucus turned around and looked at me, and they all shook their finger at me and said, well, 
this will be the last major vote you'll ever have because we'll get someone to run against you in the primary and you won't be here anymore. I said, well, at least I did something to help the area I live in. Right. So after the session was over and got back in the primary, they tried to recruit a lot of different people in, in different areas of the district to run against me. And no one would run against me. They said, you know, people said, well, after he got this bill passed to get this highway project done, I mean, who would want to run against someone like that? He did something that's really good for the district. Yeah. So I didn't get an opponent, and I got reelected very easily. And so I learned a lesson that it's it's good to keep your word. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, did uh, party leadership try to punish you at all by like trying to take away your committee assignments or something like that? Or yes, uh-huh, they did. Okay. And the, did they? Eventually, the, the next election, we had a we got the majority by one vote or one or two votes. And, all of a sudden, you know, those one or two people became more valuable. So I was restored to full full equality on things. Wow. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess that's kind of the, the dilemma, especially with people that are in districts that don't necessarily uh, reflect one political party all the time, where you're kind of put in the position that you may have to go against your party and deal with the consequences of that if you're going to follow what your constituents want. That's got to be a tough situation to be in. Yeah, it, it's a tough decision. I, I knew I was doing what was right because I thought, even if I, doing this, the party was able to, to have somebody beat me in the next election, I could leave office feeling I'd done something good for the people that had elected me in the first place. Right. Yeah. Yeah, okay, that's that's interesting. Wow. Um, and going into the General Assembly, did you kind of have that understanding or expectation about the complexities of the General Assembly and the dynamics working with, you know, party leadership or working across the aisle? Yeah, that, that was something um, that I probably did a lot more than most people in the General Assembly. It, I had two different time frames really to look at. I had the, the you know, 1980s, early 90s, and then 2006 to 2012. And, in the earliest time frame, there was a lot more collegiality between the two parties. I mean, we we go out and have dinner with each other and have a lot more social interaction. Uh, it got a lot more uh, political in the second time around. It was a lot more uh, political and, and things that were not even associating with each other socially. Wow. So you know, it, it, but you you have to make friends. You have to go uh, to to events to be able to get to know people. I mean, it's all personal relationships. And not just with each other, it's also personal relationships with a lot of the lobbyists <clears throat> that are there to represent certain interests because these people uh, have, you know, certain, some people that they represent, so to speak, that have certain needs. You have to try to evaluate those needs. And a lot of times you'll find, you know, there's there's opposing lobbyists. Like traditionally, there's a, the trial lawyers lobbyists, <clears throat> excuse me, that, you know, they, they represent people that will sue for damages. And then the insurance companies are the ones getting sued. So they don't want to have it make it easy for things to be sued on issues. So right. those two groups tend to be opposed to each other a lot of times on different issues, on different bills that are in those areas. So you find out, well, why the one want this certain way and why does the other one want this certain way? And you try to have to balance those ideas out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, dealing with lobbyists has got to be a complex thing because how do you know if a lobbyist is telling you, like, accurate information or if they're just you know, just trying to push their agenda. 
Yeah, and that, you know that's that's the thing too about keeping your word because there is there is mostly you know, you know honor among the, the the lobbyists when they say, well, we're going to support this, or we want you know we will if you will do this to the bill you have and change this change, well, then we'll support it and, and and try to get other people to vote for it. So you know there's there's honor like that too. Yeah, and for the most part, most people there were were very honest about what they say, and I'd like people to come out and tell me exactly what they you know if they don't like it, tell me and tell me why. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I operate better that way than somebody you know that tells you something and does something else. Yeah. I had one example when I was there in the '80s. I had uh, a bill that I introduced about student working hours. And <clears throat> actually, teaching school, I had a student that came in one morning and just really sleepy, and we had a test that day. And I said, "Why are you so sleepy?" She said, "Well, I had to stay up late last night. I, I work at, at a local food store, a fast food place, and they." They had me closed. I didn't get down to like midnight and come here home and studied. I, I was really sleepy. Wow. And I said, well, they, they could keep you out that late. She said, well, they, they told me if I didn't do that, they would fire me. I would lose my job. So I, I wrote a bill that said that, you know, that when you're in high school and you're a certain age, there are certain hours that employers can't have you work past on a school night. Yeah. So that a student would be forced in that situation. So I got the bill introduced. I got it uh, past the... Uh, the uh, committee in the House, and it passed the House. As it went to the Senate, uh, the, the lobbyists for the fast food industry uh, kept working with me and tried to make changes to it. And you know, I made a few little changes, but basically wanted to keep the same idea. And so it passed the Senate in a different form. It was amended a little bit and went to conference committee. And so I, I talked with this lobbyist. I said, are you supportive of the way we have we compromised? Are you supportive? He said, oh, yeah. He said, I'll help you get it past the conference committee, and we'll, we'll make sure it gets passed. And he said that in the hallway in front of a bunch of other people, a bunch of other lobbyists. There's so, you know, a lot of people hearing him say that. Yeah. So the next day, he went to the, the conference committee, and before the conference committee met, he had met with the people on the conference committee and convinced them to vote against the bill. <laughs> and they did, and they killed it. Wow. And when I got there, I was shocked to see that. He didn't say anything to me. He just turned around and walked out. And one of the guys on that committee that voted against it said, well, uh, such and such, they mentioned his name, he said, well, he said that you didn't want this bill to pass after all, that he that there were some things wrong with it, he, he convinced us to vote against it. I said, he did. So I followed him out in the hallway, and there was, he was out there among all the other people that heard me the other day when he said he was supported, and I asked him if he did that, and he kind of put his face down and said, yeah, I, I did that. He said, I, I had to work for my organization. I said, I understand that, but you lied to me. And he didn't say anything. He just put his head down. Wow. I said, you know, I could handle it. You told me that you were against it. You'd still be working against it. But I just don't like people to lie to me because you wouldn't want me to lie to you and you'd lie to me. And I just don't I think that's the right thing to do. And I just, you know, I was a little bit upset. I, I was, I didn't shout, but I was, you know, I had a strong voice when I was talking to him. Yeah. And he just put his head down and didn't say anything. And when I turned around to walk away, the other people in the hallway applauded. They, they, actually, applaud, they actually clapped their hands like, they had known this guy. I guess that he'd done that to them before too. Yikes! Jeez. So interesting. Turnabout. The next year, I reintroduced the bill again, and this time, not only did the same guy that stopped it last time did he help, he also uh, convinced the fast food association to have a scholarship. They, they established a scholarship to give the students that worked in the, in the fast food industry, and it passed. And they they had the scholarship to help these students. So that it turned out really good in the end. Okay, I guess you kind of just felt bad about it, I guess, <laughs> and tried to help out the next time. Wow. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's that's pretty. Uh, that's a pretty wild situation. So it sounds like uh, lobbyists then have a fair amount of influence on helping craft people's views then about legislation. Would you say that's accurate? Yes, I think that's definitely accurate. There's there's certain groups that tend to line up with certain parties, and there's you know there's different people in the legislature that have more power. With their committee chairman, if they're one of the leaders, and you know they tend to make alliances with different lobbying groups, uh, not only for the issues but also there's there's uh, campaign support. You know, a lot of make donations or any campaigns. Right. Yeah, so I mean that that's another interesting uh, aspect then to to look at like. How influential would you say campaign donations or, or gifts from lobbyists, how influential is that to a politician's views when it comes to legislation? Well, it, it, I think it's very influential. Um, sadly, in my view, it's, it's more influential than just the, the common everyday voter. Yeah. Um, they're organized, and they have numbers, and they have money. Yeah. And... You know, there's there's no saying in politics that money is the lifeblood of politics. Well, that that's true in a lot of levels, and especially the higher up you go. And it's probably more of an issue with leadership because leadership has such an inordinate amount of influence on what happens with legislation and you know, just shaping policy in general. That uh, you know, it's it's probably more common to see that kind of influence at the, at the level of the committee chairman or the speaker or the majority leader or somebody like that. Yeah. Yeah, so party leadership then also plays a, a huge role. Um, and I guess party leadership, you know, doesn't necessarily have to to hear legislation in a committee then, and they can just, you know, describe, describe the, I guess, how influential party leadership is in terms of just getting a bill heard or in the first place. Yeah, well, you know, like I mentioned on the other example I gave you about the caucus, you know, both parties' caucus. Yeah. And the leadership will come out in the caucus and say, well, here's certain bills we want to have passed. Here's certain bills we don't want to have passed. And then there's other bills that you just vote the way you think you should vote on yourself. So they got to go through an agenda like that. And the leadership, you know, picks the things that they think, and they give reasons for it. You know, it's, there's there's always reasons for it. Uh, but, you know, you, you still have some discretion yourself, but most, most of the time, most people will follow those directions. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, going through then that process as a legislator, are there things that you would, like, if you could, are there things that you would change about the legislative process based on your experiences? Well, um, I don't know. Uh, I guess Part of it would be with Indiana. Uh, it's a part-time legislature. You know, we, we still call it citizen legislature. That you meet for uh, different terms, like in the long years up to April 30th, and the short years like March 15th. Right. And especially the short session. I mean, there's you know there's hundreds of bills you go through, and you should at least read a summary of each thing and try to read the actual bill itself if you can. But the you know, toward the end of the session, that gets almost impossible to do. So it's like you're voting on things that you don't know exactly all the details to, which... Yeah. And, I, you know, I know if you had full-time legislature, then it would make it difficult because then people would have to have that job as a full-time job. Right, right. Like Congress, and you know, that's not good either because I was a teacher, and I, I, you know, I went up to the legislature when I was 
and it was in session, and when it was over, I came back to my teaching job. So I still had a job if I lost the election or didn't come out okay. Yeah. So there's, there's, you know, good and bad to change it to make it full time. But, you know, maybe just make it a little bit longer than what it is so you have more time to actually rebuild and see what's in them. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, now, how influential would you say uh, things like gerrymandering were when you served? Yeah, gerrymandering is, is pretty influential. Um, the last time I ran excuse me, in office was 2010, and that election, um, the majority changed from being Democrat to Republican in the House, and this, well, the Senate was still Republican. And so the, the district I had uh, was basically the same district that I excuse me, started out in 1984, and it was, it, the main area was Jennings and Jefferson County, which I had uh, you know, a lot of students in school, I had family in Jefferson County, so I was so-called well-situated as far as knowing people in the area. In 2010, uh, gerrymandering uh, changed the district I was in to just have a very small part of Jennings County, having most all of uh, Jackson County, which is Seymour, and very little, so probably the district that I started out in, probably only about 25 to 30% of it was left after the, the, the gerrymandering. Wow, okay. And so, and there was a, a gentleman who is currently the legislator for this district that lived in Seymour, and I knew that uh, with that gerrymandering that it was going to be a really difficult campaign. And, in fact, at that time I'd been in office so long I was, I was ready to retire anyway. I'm thinking I'd just probably go ahead and retire uh, <clears throat> from office, and I'd served 14 years. And uh, it was getting very contentious in the legislature anyway. It was the year though. Year before that was the walkout when the Democrat Party walked out and right. all that was going on. And I just I just don't have that kind of personality to be in a contentious situation like that. So yeah, it had a lot to do with my my decision not to run again in 2012. Yeah, so I guess it just kind of got too toxic almost then to be there. Yeah, it was you know it was a more toxic atmosphere, and, and the fact that you know the district itself has changed so substantially is almost like having to start completely all over again. Oh, wow, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um, now, you mentioned the legislative walkout. Can you describe exactly what was going on um, in that situation? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a very unpleasant situation. Um, the, the numbers had changed in the election of 2010. The Democrats had like 51 to 49. And after the election, it was like something like 61 to 39 Republican. Yeah. And the Republican Party drafted legislation that was not just, you know, a matter of changing some small things, but basically wanted to take away a lot of the uh, uh, legislation that affected labor unions and teachers and public education. Uh, they wanted to have uh, the budget uh, reduced for public schools and that money that was going to public schools would be given to private schools. 
and I didn't have a problem with, with uh, giving money to private schools. I had a problem with taking away from public schools. Right. As did most of the people in the Democrat Party. So at that time, with the numbers, the only way to stop that kind of legislation, or at least have some leverage to try and negotiate a different uh, set of circumstances, would be to walk out and not have a quorum. So that's what the Democrat Party did. Um, I, being a public school teacher, thought it was the right thing to do, and I did. And I guess I was disappointed in a couple ways. One was that I thought a lot of the parents and a lot of the people in the school would support what I did, and they didn't. Uh, they were just apathetic. There's really no uh, offer to help or support, and I was really surprised and disappointed about that. And the second thing was, after <clears throat> doing the walkout for such a long time uh, and trying to get some leverage, so the leadership came back in and, and really didn't gain any advantage from doing all that, and all the legislation passed anyway. Wow. So it, it's like uh, it was a very stressful time. Uh, the Republican Party, and I still am, am really doubtful about the legality of it, but no one really challenged it, but... They imposed fines on us without even having the authority to do so because they couldn't pass a law since they weren't in session since there was no quorum. Okay. But they just on their own imposed fines on all the people that walked out. And <clears throat> at that time, I was fined around $7,000 uh, for the walkout, which was very uh, difficult for our family to, to have to pay that. Yeah. <clears throat> and we couldn't use campaign funds. They, they passed in such a way we couldn't use campaign funds. Wow. We had to come out of our own pocket. Okay, geez, yeah. And so that was, you know, it was questionable legality-wise. Uh, I don't know. You know, Constitution says you can't have uh, lose uh, life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Well, I, I lost property without due process of law. There's no law that said that. It was just simply a, a party dictum yeah. that said they were going to do that. So it was that was a, a difficult part of it, but uh, just the you know the whole nature of the whole thing. There was so much. The hallways were filled with people all the time. There was yelling and screaming at each other, and it just like it's just like God was telling me, "Well, this your time to be there is, is now done. You need to go on and do something different." Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like it got pretty uh, frustrating. Yeah, it was. It was very frustrating. <laughs> um, well, think about your uh, legislation. Um, that you that was going on when you served the legislation you worked on. Do you remember by any chance the first bill that you sponsored? I do. I remember that very well. Uh, when I first got elected in Jefferson County, where Madison is, yeah, they were building a nuclear power plant. It was called Marble Hill. Okay. And it was uh, Public Service Indiana and Northern Indiana Public Service had gone together, and they were building this nuclear power plant. Well, it was very controversial because it's on the river, Ohio River, yeah. and nuclear power contracts were very new at that time, and construction was very new. You know, it wasn't really refined like it is now. And so they started the project, uh, they went along so far, and they, they invested over a billion dollars in the building, and as they got to the point where they were doing checking on some of the structures, they, they x-rayed some of the concrete pores, and they found there were honeycombs. There were pockets inside that were not concrete, there was uh, defective construction, and so they shut the whole the whole project down. Okay. 
Okay, what happened locally <clears throat> with the, the local uh, tax rate in Jefferson County, well, this, this uh, facility was, was being taxed, and it's a, over a billion-dollar facility, so they were paying like three-fourths to seven-eighths of all the property tax for the area because they were such a big property. Wow. And when they shut down, it, they went off the property tax roll because they were no longer, they were, they were bankrupt, they had declared bankruptcy. Jeez, so the okay. local school system in Hanover, uh, Southwestern school system, because of Marble Hill shutdown, was going to have to increase the property tax in that small part of the county. It's a small town, Hanover, 5,000 people. They're going to have to increase the property tax 1,800%. Oh, my gosh. So it, it would just, you know, there's a lot of farmers and they had a lot of land. It was just going to really be devastating for the area. Yeah. So I get elected the year this happens, and I come in, and, and people are trying to figure out what to do. You know, they don't know how to handle this. They know that we have to do something. So I had a, I had a bill written by a guy named Greg Landwehr, who was the fiscal uh, legislative assistant or legislative services person. And I had him write the bill to do this, to take the school formula and simply create a scenario as if Marble Hill had never existed. If Marble Hill had never existed, how would the formula then uh, react with the local school system? And that's what we would pick up on. We passed a bill to just kind of put in that situation so it would go on as if it had been normal. Okay. And so that's what we did. And <clears throat> being in the minority party at that time, I was very uh, pleased. Uh, Pat Kiley, who was the Republican Chairman of Ways and Means Committee, was very gracious and very helpful. He liked the idea. So I wrote the bill as the original author, but he came on and we switched the authorship where he became the original author so he would have control of the bill. And I was the, the secondary author on the, on the bill. So we were able to get it past the House and we got the Senate. The Senate um, finance chairman wanted to have control of it, so he switched it over to Senate Bill 156. And we were the two House authors and he would be took it over as a Senate bill, and it passed basically unchanged from where we started out. And the governor signed it. So it, it just saved a lot of headache and a lot of uh, uh, distress for the people in the, that school district. And in the county, Justin County, they were it was affecting their tax rate a lot too, but it, it all evened it out, and, and there was no damage, and people went back to normal. So as a freshman, you know, to have a piece of legislation passed was unusual in the minority party, but to have something... And that kind of an issue was even more unusual. So I was very thankful that I got some, some help and kindness from, especially from Pat Kiley, who was a, also, you know, a former legislator, and, and he was uh, really good to work with. And you know, it, it it wasn't a matter of who took credit for it; it was a matter of, the, of getting it done. And that was really something. So, like the local school superintendent, when I first got elected, he said, "Well." Said, what we're going to do? He said, you, you haven't been there. You don't know what you're going to do. And he said, I, I'm just really worried. I said, well, I'll do the best I can, you know. And <laughs> after it all came out and turned out good, he, he came back to me. And he said, he said, I'm sorry. I underestimated what you could do. He said, you did a pretty good job after all. <laughs> <laughs> so so we, we became close friends after that. I said, well, if there's any other things in school, he said, I'll, I'll give you a call. I said, okay, well, thanks, you know. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's a pretty sounds like a pretty big challenge to walk into for your first session. Yeah, it, it was. It was you know, and at first I, I had to do a lot of work and a lot of study just to get the 
you know, what all was involved, you know, how this bankruptcy affected what the local tax, property tax rate was and, you know, all the different information like that. And it was a lot of work, but it came out pretty good. Yeah, okay. Um, what would you say were the most controversial legislative issues when you served? Well, I would say that I've, I've always been pretty conservative, and, and even as a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And I've always been in favor of right to life. Okay. And there's been a lot of different bills that have gone through the time I was in, um, in the legislature to restrict the availability of abortion, or in some cases even try to eliminate abortion in Indiana. Right. Back in, I think it was 1988, we had, uh, when the election was held, there was a tie. There was 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans. So that's only the first time in Indiana. It happened, it happened twice in Indiana, but it's only the first time it happened. I was there. And it only happened three times in the United States history as far as having a tied legislature like that. Yeah, okay. So at that time, the, the solution to having 50-50 was we had two speakers and two chairmen of each committee. Yep. That year, I introduced a bill on viability for abortion. If a, if a fetus can live a certain age outside the mother, then there shouldn't be allowed to be an abortion because it could be the person could be living on their own. They shouldn't be aborted. Mm-hmm. So I introduced this bill, and there's, there's like I said, there's two chairmen. So it went to the Public Service Committee, and since it was a controversial abortion bill, uh, they knew they were going to have a big crowd of people to come testify or at least watch what was going on. So instead of having it at the state house, they actually went to IU uh, uh, campus in Indianapolis and rented an auditorium to help 5,000 people. So we had the hearing at the bill at this auditorium and it was packed. Yeah. And it was almost like you could see on, on, like on the left side from the stage, you could tell people when I was getting ready to make my presentation, they were smiling at me. <laughs> and about the other, on the right side, you know, people were there with their arms crossed and scowling. At yeah. Me. So it's like almost evenly divided audience. I could just kind of tell by looking at the, the facial expressions of people in the audience. Wow. And so I had to give up and present this bill that's controversial in front of 5,000 people. Yeah. And, you know, the, the chairman was good about keeping order. He told people that they couldn't speak out or say anything, and people cooperate for the most part, but I could tell <clears throat> that when it was, it was over, you know, there's there's a lot of people that just, when I finished, they just got up and about half the people just got up and walked down, the other half that kind of stayed there and were smiling, so I thought, well, I can kind of see who supports it and who doesn't. Okay. Yeah, I bet, yeah. So yeah. that was, it was pretty controversial, and I had another time, the last, last, uh, last couple of years I was in session in the 2010 session where I had another bill that passed the Senate that was about abortion services. If a, if a doctor gave a woman abortion, this bill required that the doctor provide uh, health care for her after the abortion, which okay. seemed like a very reasonable thing to do. You know, if you're going to give a lady abortion, you should be able to go back to the doctor, have a checkup later on, and make sure that everything is fine health-wise. Yeah. <laughs> that became a very controversial bill also. Um, when I was the House sponsor of the Senate bill, I was the House sponsor, and when I made the presentation, my own party uh, attacked me on the floor. They, they, you know, said things about me and, and kind of said how how wrong I was and how this was a terrible thing. And, yeah. And so that was different too to be attacked. I mean, it was a very widespread. And I had people before the hearing even 
from the, my own party saying they begged me and not to have the bill, not to let it go up. And, you know, I mean, it was really a very tense situation that way, too. Right. And I remember as I presented the bill on the floor, uh, I was, I mean, I, at that point in time, I've been there for a long time. I didn't really get nervous that often, but I was pretty nervous about this because of all the, the tension going on. I remember I looked up in the, to the gallery as I'm making my presentation, and there was a lady up there that I could see was praying for me. Wow. And all of a sudden, I just, I just had this feeling of calmness come over me, and I was able to go ahead and make the presentation, and I just, it just like, you know, all this weight was just taken off my shoulders instantly. It's just, it's just really an amazing thing. Yeah, I mean, it kind of sounds like, because it, it sounds like you've, you've had several kind of brush-ups with your own party, um, it almost sounds like you must have kind of felt like you're almost an independent, uh, you know, member of the General Assembly uh, at some points in your career because you, you know, had really, uh, you either get criticized by, you know, one party for, you know, by the Republican Party because you're, you know, usually working on Democrat legislation or you get criticized by the Democratic Party for um, crossing over on the other side for legislation that uh, you identify with more. Um, that must have been a, kind of a, a challenge then to be in that position. It was, and it was more of a challenge the second time I was in office than the first. Um, I've always been conservative. Mm -hmm. I was in the Democrat Party because of being a public school teacher. Yeah. But uh, I think there were less conservative people in the Democrat Party as time goes on, even more so today than what there has been in the past. Okay. So do you think then that, like... Uh, the parties in Indiana, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, have they become uh, further away that are like more to the extremes than before in terms of uh, being conservative or liberal? I think they have, yes. I think there's more extremes now uh, <clears throat> because the Republican Party has has more of a base and really they have super majorities in both houses now in Indiana. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of Democrats that realize that it would be more difficult to get elected in Indiana as a Democrat. So the moderate, the moderate Democrats have switched over to the Republican Party. And oh, okay. So it's made the Republican Party less conservative than what it had been. Interesting. Uh, I think uh, that's that's what happened right now. And I think this past session, if you can see that, with some of the legislation came out on some of the schools, the school social issues like critical race theory and mm -hmm. gender sports and things like this that, you know, the General Assembly only really passed one bill that dealt with all these issues on this current session, and the governor vetoed that. Yeah. So, you know, that, that was a conservative bill, <clears throat> and, you know, I don't think the governor is very conservative. I mean, I don't have anything against him, but I just, you know, it's an observation of what he did with this bill that uh, I think this made the, the whole state a little bit more more liberal and less conservative than what it had been. Yeah, interesting, okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that is an interesting uh, concept I've kind of always wondered about because yeah, you see the supermajorities, and obviously if you're interested in running to be a member of the General Assembly and you see that, you know, the proportion of Republicans versus Democrats, you if you... If you were somewhat moderate, you yeah you would think that yeah maybe the being running as Republicans like your only shot of getting elected unless you're in a really safe uh, Democratic district, um, right? And it almost you wonder then if that super majority were to increase over time, if you're almost going to get 
the Republican Party split almost at some point because it's... Yeah, <laughs> that's what's supposed to happen right now. There's, there's a conservative wing and a, a more liberal wing of the Republican Party. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, what would you say was the most complex piece of legislation that you ever worked on? Well, uh, I worked on a piece of legislation that uh, had to do with uh, missing persons. Okay. Um, it's, there was a, a girl that lived in Madison who was in college, and she was out running, and she disappeared, and uh, didn't return to the dorm, and was, was, was gone, and was missing, and she was never found. It's been, you know, 20 years ago when this happened, maybe, but, uh, and there were people that were with her, there were roommates, other people, they called the police and reported her missing. But the police didn't start the investigation until like three or four days later. And at that point in time, it was just like the trail was so cold, they just didn't have any chance to really find out what happened. Yikes. So I introduced some legislation um, that had to do with missing persons, and it required local police authorities to, if there's a, if there's a call about a missing person, that they need to go ahead and begin the investigation immediately. Because there was a lot of statistics all the way from the FBI on down to the state police of cases where if the investigation started immediately, there was a much, much higher uh, success rate of recovering that person or finding that person than if it went for a day or two. Yeah, yeah. So it was complicated. The state police opposed it because they didn't want to have that imposed on them by the legislature. It wasn't that they didn't want to have you know people investigated, but they didn't want to have that forced on them. But they don't tend to do that. You know, they, they have other things. They just they have their own preferences. And the statistics were just overwhelming, showing how much more you could save a person's life mm-hmm. if you were to start an investigation immediately. Yeah. So it was a very complicated bill. I had to um, try to compromise with the state police. They were, they were very good to work with. Uh, they had their own procedures and things they wanted to do. But we finally were able to get it passed. And uh, it, it, there's some cases that happened after that that people were, were actually probably saved. They say, probably saved a lot because they were, they did start the investigation a lot sooner. And the, the whole thing that probably stuck out the most in my mind as we went through this bill, when it was in the Senate committee, it passed the House and went to the Senate committee. And Senator Young was the Senate sponsor. He, he had someone in his district that had been kidnapped and found murdered and it was, he was very interested from a personal standpoint. Yeah. So as we had the committee meeting, there was a lady that came in and I don't remember her name, but her testimony still sticks in my mind. She came in and she testified that a couple of years ago, her sister was abducted from a house trailer and her, when she reported the police, she called when she found out, like within an hour or so when she was abducted, she called the police and from the neighborhood she lived in, it was a poor neighborhood, and the police wouldn't even talk to her. They said, well, we get all these calls all the time. We don't, we don't have time to check on these things. Wow. And so she was, you know, she was so disheartened by the fact that the police wouldn't even listen to her. And it says, like, well, you know, you're, you're just in this bad neighborhood. We don't, we don't really listen to calls in this neighborhood, and we, we can't help you out. So they totally couldn't help her. Her sister ended up, turned up murdered. And, you know, she was just really bitter that the police didn't even try to help save her sister's life. Yeah. And so here she is testifying at this committee, and she said, you know, 
I called the police to get help to save my sister's life. They wouldn't listen to me. She said, here I am now at the state house in Indiana, in Indianapolis, before the Senate committee in the state of Indiana with senators and representatives of the state of Indiana. And I'm standing here and I'm telling my story and you guys are listening to me. She said, this has restored my faith in government because when I tried to do something to help my sister to save her life, no one listened. She said, now you're listening to what I have to say and you're trying to do something to help save other people's lives in the future. She said, that's restored my faith in, in government. And that just stuck with me. It's just like, yeah, that's what government should be all about. I mean, sure. it shouldn't be where you live or who you are. It should be there to help anyone that has a need. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Wow. Um, let's see, thinking about some of the specific legislation stuff that was going on when you served, um, I saw like the newspapers, there was debates going on around like gay marriage and stuff. Uh, what do you remember about those debates going on? And yeah, the, the gay marriage, uh, I was there at the time. Uh, in fact, I was the co-author of the marriage amendment in the House. Okay. And I remember there were, there were again, there were a lot of people out in the hallway. Uh, there were people that, you know, just filled the hallways about the years, a very controversial issue. And it was like, <clears throat> I, I, I felt that, Sometimes, you know, some of the traditional things, we do things, it's, it's based on what God said about marriage. Mm -hmm. And I had no problem with people um, making contracts about if you want to have a certain person inherit your money or have a certain person sit, visit you at the hospital, you can sign a, a contract of some sort and do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I had no problem with doing those kind of relationships, which is really what, what a lot of gay people were asking for. But to say it's a marriage, I just, I just couldn't accept that. I just think that was wrong. And so I was the co-author on this marriage amendment, and it was interesting, the, the testimony. And, you know, we listened to what people had to say. And it, it, in a constitutional amendment, you had to pass it two different years to get it to be part of the Constitution and have it voted on by the people. Well, it passed the first year, and before the second year, it could be done in the second year. The Supreme Court of the United States actually made a decision that allowed uh, gay marriage, so it kind of took, took away the, the, you know, the illegal right. possibility of doing something like that. But during the whole time we were doing that, it was one of the things that stuck in my mind, there was a, a young lady that came in to testify to the committee, and she reported that she was gay, and she was here to testify. I thought, well, she's going to be against the bill, against the uh, constitutional amendment because she's gay. She said, you know, I, I was gay, and she said, I... I thought I would, that's who I was, that I was a, a born a gay person. And she said, then I accepted Jesus as my savior, and I realized that that's not who I am, that that's just something I do. Okay. And she said, I realized that I don't have to do that, that that doesn't define who I am. I am a person who's a child of God, and I, I am not going to do that. And she said, I haven't, I've given up being a homosexual. She said, I, I'm not doing that anymore. She said, no, it was just a behavior, it wasn't who I am or who I was. And she said, that just changed my whole outlook on, on the whole thing. She said, I think that's really the, the myth and the lie that people are believing. They think that they're born that way and they have to be that way. And you, you don't. She said, I'm, I'm living proof of that. I, I rejected that lifestyle. It's, it's not who I am. 
to me that really made a lot of sense, you know, because it, it's like people were saying, well, it's like race. Well, if you're born a certain race, that's who you are. You can't change that. And that's kind of the way that people were looking at homosexuality. But this girl who had been a homosexual came in and said, that's not it. That's not true. And it really, it really made me think about that whole issue in a different way. So I guess you then really got people from all sorts of different perspectives coming in to, in that committee to sort of give their, their uh, perspective on it. That's interesting. Sounds like a, a lot of different people. Yes. Uh-huh. And so was that another uh, piece of legislation then that kind of alienated you from your party then? or? Yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My party didn't want to pass, and I, I don't understand that, but... Uh... Yeah, we they they didn't want me to be co-author, and I did anyway. Yeah, because uh, it's something I, I sincerely believed in. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. Now I'm just moving towards some kind of big picture reflection questions. Uh, how would you summarize your time as a state legislator? It was a, a very um, enjoyable time. Mostly, I enjoyed being able to do that, to be able to serve. Uh, I. I felt it was a, a privilege that uh, I mean, necessarily didn't deserve, but I, I still look at it as being a privilege to be able to have some of the opportunities that I had to, to do things and to, to be where I was, to see different people um, and to get to know some people that went to the legislature. I made some lifelong friends in the legislature. So overall, it was a very uh, rewarding experience. I'm, I'm thankful that I got to do that. Yeah, okay. Um, let's see. Do you have like a, a favorite memory or a story from your time in the Indiana General Assembly? Well, um, there, there are a lot of different stories. I guess the, one of my favorite ones was I was, I, uh, the second time I was in office, uh, I had, uh, there's a place here in my district where there was a, a farm. And they, they had older horses that they would take and they would ship to Mexico to, to make, you know, made into fertilizer or glue, something like that. But they, these poor horses were out in like a field of mud and it, it was all dirty and everything. They weren't very well taken care of. And so I had several people in the district said, well, can you do something about this? And I thought, well, you really can't pass a law on how horses are treated unless they're just being really mistreated. You know, I mean, just standing out in a field of mud is not mistreated, mm-hmm. you know, mistreatment, but... I thought, well, I'll try to do something just to make a point that, you know, to draw attention to this. Maybe the guy that owned the farm would try to make it better for the horses. So I, I introduced an amendment uh, on a bill that had something to do with the same area, uh, that anyone who had a, a farm, that they had to provide a dry place for animals to be able to be taken to so they wouldn't be out in the weather or out in muddy conditions or something like this. Hmm, okay. With no place else to go. Interesting. That's about the best I could think of, you know. But, yeah. And I knew it wasn't going to pass, but I thought, well, I at least have to try and get some attention to this one situation. Maybe the guy would change the situation. So I presented my amendment, and one of the legislators who is a farmer, uh, when he's not in the legislature, got up to, to question me, and he started asking questions, well, how are you going to, you know, what kind of place you're going to have for the animal to be? I said, well, you could have a concrete slab, or you could have a dry area on a little hillside or grassy area or something like this, you know. And, well, uh, what if what if a farmer doesn't do this? What are you going to do? I said, well, I guess you could have a fine. You know, try to answer all these questions. Yeah. And he said, and he, the next question was, well, 
is this mainly for horses? And <laughs> I, I, this just came into my mind, and I, I knew it would go past him. I said, well, Representative, and I said his name, I said, from all your questions, to me it sounds like on this particular amendment that you're going to vote, nay. <laughs> he just stopped it. And the whole, the whole, uh, the whole area just, just broke into laughter. I mean, it was, it kind of cut the edge a little bit because he was, you know, really grilling me on things, but we just had a little humor on that. You yeah. Know? It, just, it was just meant to be funny. Right. And one of the guys in the front row but almost fell out of his chair. He's laughing so hard because the guy that was asking the question, I mean, he just had this, this deer in headlight look on his face like he didn't know how to respond. I was just joking, you know. I, mean, I was just yeah. joking about it. I, I guess from your comments, you're going to vote, nay. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so that was that was a that was a, a fun moment. And yeah, that was a good memory for me. Sure. Uh, what lessons did you learn from your experiences? I think probably the biggest lesson is I learned how to be a better judge of human nature. Okay. To be able to understand people better uh, on what they what they're really saying and what they really need and what they really mean when they when they do something. And, you know, I, I had a lot of cases I can compare myself to when I first started out, you know, how naive and green I was. And I, I learned a lot when I went through. I mean, I still don't know everything and never will, but right. uh, I, I learned a lot about human nature. I had a guy in the opposite party. He was a good friend of mine. He was also um, when we did a lot of bills together. And I had a bill on education uh, about bargaining with, with school uh, systems. And he went on as a co-author. And I said, now, I, you know, I said his name, I said, you know, your party's not going to want you to do this. I said, you're, you're going to, they're going to be told that you can't do this. You're going to have to get off. He said, no, I want to do this anyway. He said, you're a good friend. I want to be co-author with you. I said, no. I said, you're going to, you're going to get some heat from your party. He said, I don't care. I can handle the heat. Okay. So I put his name on the bill. Well, a couple of days later, he comes back to me. He said, I need to talk to you. I said, okay. He said, uh, you were right. He said, I'm getting a lot of heat from my party and they want me to take my name off the bill. Mm. Okay. I said, let's go ahead and take your name off the bill. He said, no, no. He said, I gave my word to you that I'd I, I stay on the bill. And he said, I'm going to stay on. I said, no. I said, let's go ahead and take your name off the bill. I don't want you to get all this heat because the bill's probably not going to pass anyway. I said, to me, it's better to have a friend than to have a co-author on a bill. And I want to protect you as a friend, so I'm going to go ahead and take your name off. And that's that's just, you know, that's what we need to do. So he thanked me for that. And... We were friends already, but he became even a deeper friend because it's like I was looking out more for him than I was worried about the bill itself. And I learned that those are the important things more than what you have as far as passing a bill or getting something done is the kind of friendships and kind of relationships you have with other people. Yeah, okay. Sure. Uh, did you have any regrets as a legislator? Um, yes, I have one regret. Um I, I should have done something differently on a particular bill that I was just kind of overwhelmed on. And I won't go into the details of it, but okay. I was lied to by my my own party leadership. And instead of doing something about it, I, I kept thinking that they were going to come around and be honest about it and do what they had promised they were going to do. And they never did. And, and it, it affected some things that it really made it uh, difficult. Okay. And, you know, looking back now, I wish I had been a bit stronger in standing up to leadership on this one particular thing. But, again, you know, you live and learn when you go through situations. And 
that sometimes those things would just happen like that. Yeah, sure. Uh, what was your proudest moment? Um, probably, uh, I'd say to have that the missing persons bill pass. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that was that was something that could save people's lives. And uh, that was like a lot of the, and I had some some good help from a lot of people. I mean, uh, the the cousin of the, the missing girl was very very helpful. Uh, she actually became my legislative assistant later on. Oh, okay. Uh, but it was interesting. It was just something that was you know when you do something that would be good for people, especially if you could potentially save someone's life. That that was a, a good moment. Yeah, sure. Uh, what advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators? Uh, keep your word. Uh, one, number two, don't go to don't go into office and just try to get by and just kind of coast through. And don't I mean, there there can be controversial things that you want to avoid, but take a stand for what is right. You know, don't just go there and just say, "Well, there wasn't anything I could do about this." You know, this. This is something that's, that's bad is happening, but I just couldn't do anything about it. You know, it's like sometimes you got to take a stand. Sometimes you got to put yourself out there, and and, and like I did on that that uh, one bill that uh, benefited my district as far as those construction projects. You know, I I knew it was going to be a difficult thing, but I had to do something to, to try help my district, and it, it could have cost me the, the the election. Yeah, it didn't, but it could have, and you know. People get too concerned about getting reelected. I mean, they do everything for the most part to see how make it easy and less controversial about getting reelected. But you shouldn't be looking for controversial things. But you shouldn't stay away from something controversial if it means doing the right thing. Right, right. And I just I see there's so many legislators now that just don't want to stand up and take on you know, anything that's controversial because they don't want to jeopardize their chance of getting reelected. They're worried more about their job than they are what they're supposed to be there for in the first place. Mm, okay. Yeah. So, what would you say is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly? Well, I, I think um, the most important work probably is education. I mean, that's the biggest part of the budget. Um, I, as a former teacher, I, I just really disappointed in the way uh, a lot of things are going. We we spend way too much money and time on testing. From the state, yeah. Uh, I I taught school and I gave tests in my class on, on the subject I taught, and they were good indicators of how the students were doing because I taught the subject first and then I tested on it. With the state testing now, they you know they don't give you what they're going to be putting on the test. So if you're teaching math, well, do you concentrate more in, in quadratic equations or in, in algebra? You know, well, one test they have from the state might have you know, 60% of the questions are one thing, and you might not be able to teach all that. Mm-hmm. So you only have a fair test if the if the material has been taught first and then tested on. And yeah. with the state testing, that doesn't happen. They just they just randomly pick different things to put on the test, and there's just so much different things they put on it. There's a lot of things they, they put on there that haven't even been taught to kids, and they're being tested on something they were never taught, and that's just, that's just simply not fair. Yeah, okay. What does the public not know about the Indiana General Assembly and how it operates? Oh, they, they probably suspect it, but they don't know exactly how all these deals are made. Yeah, okay. <laughs> There's a lot of deals go on. There's a lot of uh, trading back and forth for this and that. And, and I don't think they realize how much money influences 
the legislature. Sure. Uh, something passes because somebody gives a lot of money. And, you know, it's legal because you make campaign contributions, but you go back and look at how much money is contributed by certain groups to certain people that concern certain issues, and you'll find there's a big tie there between those two kind of things. And people don't, they know it, but they don't realize how, how deep it is, I think. Right, yeah. Um, how has the state of Indiana changed over the course of uh, your lifetime? Well, I think more, the thing that's changed more than anything is technology. Uh, it just changed our whole life on everything. I mean, just think how quickly things have changed in the last few years. You know, the Internet and the, yeah. the iPhones and all the cell phones and, you know, just all the... When I was in office first time, when I sent out letters, I had a, they had a typing pool. Yeah. I write out the letter by hand and then typist <laughs> would, would type it and send it out. Wow. Second time I was in, I was just I was speaking to a recorder and the computer would print it out and, and uh, print it out and have it mailed out. So it's like, you know, the whole typing pool was eliminated. Uh, even toward the end of the time I was there, I mean, we, we still have, when I came back the second time in the late, like 2006, we still had stacks of paper bills on the desk we could read. Wow, okay. Right toward the end of it, we had laptop computers we had on our desk, and we didn't have all that paper. We just simply brought it up on screen and read it on screen, saved tons of papers, made it a lot easier to get information. So the technology has really made a big difference on, on what's going on. And it's changed the whole, whole state and the whole country, the whole world, really. But yeah. that's been the biggest change probably I've seen. How have uh, the people of Indiana changed? I think the people of Indiana have, I don't know, I think they've become more liberal. Okay. Uh, and I, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, uh, it's just the values of, it's, 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 I think it's more of a generational thing than anything. I think younger generation doesn't understand some things. I mean, I, I think a lot of people, younger people, now think socialism is okay. Mm-hmm. And, it's not. I, mean, mm-hmm. you live, I lived during the time of the old Soviet Union, and we were looking at nuclear war and yeah. Know, yeah. Marxism and, and all that stuff. I mean, and all the death and destruction that the socialist system did to people in Europe and Russia. I mean, they didn't. people didn't live through that. They're, you know, younger people now didn't live through that. They didn't understand how terrible it can be. I did. I lived through that. We had nuclear... Uh, survival drills in school, we had to get under our desks and do that, you know, because we, we were expecting nuclear war. We, I went to the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was in school. Yeah. I thought the world was going to end. You know, this is all the effects of socialism. And now people think, oh, it's okay. Everybody gets everything free. You know, it's like, no, that's not the way it works. You know? Yeah. But that's, that's probably the biggest change, I think, is that the people generationally have seen, have been, I think, brainwashed into thinking that socialism is, is a good system. It's mm-hmm. not. Yeah, it does seem like there's yeah big generation gaps. Um, I guess a lot of, yeah based on also I guess your the differences in experiences growing up, and uh, yeah that sort of historical memory doesn't necessarily carry on I suppose from generation to generation. Um, yeah, I, I taught history in school. I taught world history, and you know I, I understand that maybe better than some is that if you don't study history, you're doomed to re- repeat the mistakes. But mm-hmm. uh, a lot of kids they don't they don't look at that history. They just take you know the, the the media's word for it now. That, oh, this is a good thing. We can get we get all this free stuff. You know, everything's free, right? And nothing's free. You know, it's not. <laughs> uh, let's see. What hasn't changed about the people of Indiana? 
I think the people of Indiana still care for each other. I think they, they want to do what's right and want to do what's good for their kids and for, you know, there, there's a, a basic belief in, in, in God. I think they're still, uh, we're still very uh, religious people. Uh, we still believe in each other and, and believe in helping each other. And, you know, helping each other, you can see that a lot of times when something bad goes, a lot of people step up and, and help other people. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's changed. I think that's, there's there's still good human nature and, and people of Indiana. Yeah, okay. Our final question, uh, what do you want the people of Indiana to know about their influence on the General Assembly? They have more influence than they realize. I mean, I used to be, if something came up and I heard, you know, 10 or 12 people would call me or contact me, I knew that that was something important to look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if, if you... If you have a hundred people call you, then you better be, you know, paying attention. You better be looking at things because it's, and people don't realize that. I mean, it, one or two people calling doesn't make much difference, but if you have a group or a large number, legislators do listen to that because they they are concerned about getting elected, and those are voters, and they they need to listen. So I think that people need to understand that better that they do have some, they do have uh, more control than they think as far as contacting legislators. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, is there anything that I did not ask about that you want to mention? or? I think we've covered it real well. I hope I've provided some good information for you, too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, all right, it should be a, a good addition to the collection of interviews. So thank you again for uh, taking part in doing this. Sure. I, I enjoyed it and covered some of the old memories. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Go down memory lane. And, uh, yeah, it's always interesting for sure. So, all right. Thanks again. I appreciate okay. it. Uh-huh. Thank you for your time. Good good talking to you. Yes, you too. I'll be in touch. Okay. All right. Bye-bye.